0: Thanks for listening to this sermon from the Image Church. Find out more about us and our weekly services at imagejesus.com. So we had Easter, and, uh, you know, Easter is this huge, huge deal, right? As Christians, it's our Super Bowl. We like to celebrate it. Everyone gets together. Everyone comes to church. And in the Bible, in the New Testament, it goes from Easter right into Acts. And so what I'd like to do is the past two weeks, Jay's been talking about a few things in Acts. So I'm just going to do a quick recap to catch us up where we are. So I'm going to read from Acts 1, 4 through 11 real quick. If you have a Bible and not a phone, then you can turn to it now. But, all right. And while staying with them, he ordered not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So when I was a kid, um, I'm a 90s kid. I was born in 85, but like in 90, I was five. In 2000, I was 15. So I was quintessential 90s kids. That was my prime years. One of the greatest things about the 90s to me was NASA. All right. So me, I'm a nerd, but I dreamed of being an astronaut almost all the time. It was something about being in space, discovering other planets. Is there aliens? I don't know. Um, I don't think so anymore. But I was always so curious about who these people were and what they were doing and the training they did, you know, that like G test. And since I'm a big G, I guess I would have done really good. So, um, yeah, so it was awesome. And so when we were at my house, we would, my dad liked planes and other stuff too. So we would watch TV and we'd watch these shuttle launches and, you know, it'd be a big countdown. They show all the prep work for it. And all of a sudden, you know, it'd be like 10, nine, and then the rockets would flare up and it would just blast off. And then we would go outside my house, because it was in Cape Canaveral, and we'd look outside, and over the horizon, after enough time, you would see the flare and the, like, smoke line of it going up into space. And it was so cool. And so I'd just watch it and watch it, and then the flare would disappear, and then the lines would kind of blur. And at some point, you had to, like, look down, because it was like, well, I'm just looking at nothing now. So you kind of look back down, and you're like, so... That was fun. What now? What should we do? Um, <clears throat> I got a feeling that this is kind of what the apostles felt like times a million when they saw Jesus ascend in a cloud in the heavens. It's like, it's like, all this stuff has happened. You've been with this guy for three years. You've seen so many miracles. You've seen like people healed, people rise from the dead. You've seen this guy be dead and then be alive and then make you fish sandwiches, like we talked about on Easter. And then now he's talking about like, hey, I'll catch you on the flip side. Cloud comes, raises them up, and everyone's mouth drop. But then all of a sudden, the cloud dissipates. Jesus is gone. And I just feel like the two angels came behind him just tapping on his shoulder like, hey, what are y'all looking at? Let's go. But it's not quite the same because Jesus gave them one command. What was it? To wait. To wait. So they waited. What did they wait for? The Spirit of God. So in the Bible, from the beginning, I mean, these are Jews, so they're thinking like, all right, so at the beginning, there's the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, before the world's even formed. And then the spirit of God actually comes into existence in the tabernacle. And it's so holy that if you touch it, if, the, if anyone other than this one person touches it, they die. And then it's in the temple and it's just the holy of holies and no one has access to this. This is God's spirit. And then all of a sudden it descends on a man named Jesus, who it signifies, this is the Messiah. This is the one you've been waiting for. And then this Messiah leaves and says, hey, this same thing's coming on you guys. Like you were baptized with water. It's going to baptize you guys like that. That would be insanely freaky to me because I would be sitting there waiting like, he didn't tell him when it was going to happen. And he didn't tell him how it was going to happen. You're just waiting for something to happen. And so anticipation would be killing me. But It happens, the promised spirit pours out at Pentecost and it says it in Acts 2, one through four. This will happen. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. So, this is obviously a spectacle. There's nothing today that you can actually compare this to. It's like uncomparable, it's one of the game changers in human history. And from here, the rest of my sermon could focus on several things when I was thinking about what I was going to preach on today. Um, you could do what is the significance of the Spirit coming on this Jewish holiday of Pentecost? It's, Pentecost means 50. It's 50 days after um, Passover when Jesus was actually crucified. And it comes on the same day and there's significance there and it's really rich and deep. You could talk about the reversal of the Tower of Babel in Genesis. They, God scattered the people and divided their languages and confused their languages. And now he's reconciling all these people, all these exiles, Jewish exiles, all over the place, coming back to one place and speaking a unified language in the gospel. So there's amazing stuff to talk about here. But the thing I'm going to talk about today is just the question, so now what? I mean, this is the question I think we actually face here in the church a lot. Because um, the reason I chose this angle, because several of you guys have had conversations with in the past few weeks, and I feel like people are really confused. What do we do? Like, we get the Easter thing. It's amazing, Jesus. He He died and resurrected, and He's alive, and that's awesome. And He forgives my sin. But today, like literally today, what do we do? So now what? And when I was talking with people in our church, it became evident because a lot of you guys, it seemed like you were you're feeling dry, you were feeling um, empty, like you were wondering, you're feeling drained, and the Bible talks about that's not actually what someone should be feeling like as a Christian. Um, And so when I was reading through the first two chapters of Acts, I found myself drawn to a portion of Peter's um, first sermon. Now, Peter's the guy who denied Jesus three times. He's also the guy that jumped out of boats a few times for Jesus. And after all these people are talking all this stuff, all these different languages, um, some other Jews are seeing this happening and they're not saying, wow, this is amazing. They're like, these Jews are drunk. These Jews right here, they're swasted. They don't even know what they're talking about. And so Peter kind of steps into his role for the first time and gives his first sermon as the actual like rock of the church. And it's an epic sermon, but I found myself drawn to this one part where he quoted Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And it's a portion of a song that David wrote when he was looking forward to an everlasting life in the presence of God. And I think all four verses that Peter shares have present realities for us now as we read it. So I'm going to read the whole thing through right now. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My flesh will also dwell in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. So on first reading of that, that might seem like, oh, okay, that's a cool verse, I guess. Um, But I think if we break it down, uh, it'll be really fruitful for us because it was really helpful for me this week when I was looking at it. So the first verse is, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. In verse 25, the first present reality that it's sharing is the present truth. And I'm saying present because it has present day, right now, reality to it, like for us, okay? That's what I'm saying, present. I'm thinking, this is what we need to know today. So what is the truth here? Well, let's break it down. A literal translation would actually say, I saw the Lord always before my face. Now, I think there's a difference there. And why would I highlight that? Because someone can be before you, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're paying them attention, right? So so all of us who are parents, your kid's before you, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're actually looking at what they're doing and paying attention. But if your kid's in your face, then you cannot get around them and you have their full attention. And so when David says, I saw the Lord always before my face, what he's saying is my gaze, my attention is always towards God. And I love the idea about being before someone's face because that means you have their attention. But what's crazy here is what we all should be asking is, why would we be shaken before the Lord? Like, what happened? Why do we need someone to stand next to us? What would happen before the Lord that would shake us? And we can read in Hebrews 4.13 that nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God sees everything. We can't hide anything from God. So he sees all and we must give account for everything. All the choices we make, all the ways we steward our time, the places we go, the relationships we have, We have to account for all the things God's given to us. And if you're like me, that is really scary. Because you will stand before God one day. And he will ask you to give account for the life he's given you. It's terrifying in a way. Because you're before a perfect, holy, just, loving God. And you have been anything but that. And not for your whole life. But there's been part of your lives where you have failed and fallen short and it will be exposed and God cannot have sin before him. So when that is exposed, not only will you shake, you will crumble. And not only will you crumble, you will die because we cannot be before a holy God with any sin. And that's bad news for every single person in this room. So when we think we're alone, when we think no one will know, when we think, There's these things that we've never told anyone so that, you know, I get a pass for it. God knows them and we will give an account for it. But as Christians, this is not scary because I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken because he, Jesus, is at our right hand. We will not be shaken. When Jesus ascended, like, I think as Christians, we think a lot about, We know that Jesus lived a really good life. We know that Jesus definitely died on a cross. Most of us believe he actually raised from the dead. But I think a lot of times we we don't think about the fact that he ascended to heaven. Why did he ascend to heaven? What business did he have in heaven? And where did he go into heaven? At the right hand of the Father. So what does that mean, this term like my right hand? Well, in the Bible, Throughout scripture, it indicates that the right hand means God's power and his rule. So when Jesus ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father, what it's saying is he ascended to sit on the throne of his kingdom of the universe. Ephesians 1 says a little better. He says, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, to the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is amazing news. This is, the, you know, we say it's good news, but the good news keeps getting better and better. Like, the good news isn't a past tense thing. We are in the process of the good news continuing to unfold and get better and better. We're not waiting for a day when Jesus reigns, Jesus is reigning right now in heaven. Over all of the universe, over all of creation. He's putting his enemies under his feet right now. He is having his gospel being preached all over the world right now. And his kingdom is expanding all over the world right now. So another question, um, another answer to the question, so now what? Like what's going on right now? Well, Jesus is king now, right now. And if you're a Christian, you are a part of God's kingdom right now. You were brought from death to life to serve King Jesus when? Right now, okay? Everything we do matters now. And if you're not a Christian, Jesus is calling you to turn back to your heavenly father and be reconciled with him right now, not tomorrow, not in the future but right now. So we're not waiting to die to be with God. That's what Pentecost is about. If you believe that Jesus Christ is your hope for salvation, then you have been baptized in the spirit, which means you have access to God right now. You don't have to wait. You have access to him right now. So if that's true, which it is, how do we live? Um, When asked what the Christian life is, I think Martin Luther had a pretty good answer. This guy was the father of the Reformation. Basically, this is why you're not in a Catholic church right now. And um, if there was Twitter back then, he would have dominated because he had a lot of great one-liners. He's pretty feisty. Um, But he said something when they... Someone asked him, what what is the essence of Christian life? And he said, to live quorum Deo. That was Latin. That's not English. And that means... Before the face of God. Now, I'm not a tattoo guy, but this would be a pretty awesome tattoo. So if you want to take that, take it. No harm, no foul. Basically, quorum Deo means everything we do, we need to remember. We're in the presence of God right now. Everything we do has significance. There's no off moments with God. So stop believing that your sin, well, we believe this lie, and this is what I'm seeing in our church, we believe this lie that when we sin, we know we sinned, we're like, oh, I did it again. We repent, we come back to God, say, God, please forgive me, God forgives us. And then what do we do then? We kind of just wait in limbo until like the next time we sin. We're like, ah, hope I don't sin again. And we're just, we're doing nothing. But we're just like, anxious, paranoid people. And what I'm telling you is we've been brought from death to life as new creations to actually live out a life pleasing to God. And as we move forward, you know, we, as new creations, do we have indwelling sin in us still? Yes. But do we also have the indwelling spirit of God? Absolutely. And what's more powerful? The spirit of God has conquered sin. Okay. And it can conquer sin in us too. So when I look around and I don't see hope for change, it's a lie that Satan is putting into our brain because we can hope that we can pursue change, that God will actually soften our hearts and we can desire to do and pursue good things that God commanded, which is actually everything he's commanded. All the things he commanded are good, not because We say they're good, not because other people think they're good, because God says they're good. And God is good. So these are the things that we want to pursue. And guess what? When we fail, we have grace. So that should give us the biggest motivation to actually charge forward as hard as we can. Because when we fail, God picks us up, says, let's keep going. So what is freedom in the gospel? I think this is a, a tricky question because... Some of us feel that when you, you are free in the gospel, that means that you weren't enslaved to sin. Now you're free to do whatever you want. No. By all means, no. Okay? God actually has a plan for you that's much better than what you want to do for yourself. All right? So, like I said before, it almost is like we know we're enslaved to— well, This is what happens. So we're enslaved to sin. We're shackled in. God gives us eyes to see that we're shackled to sin, and at the end of this sin is death. And that's our only hope. Or there's no hope. That's our only existence. We're going to die and be separated from God because we have this chain on us. Then Jesus, through his blood, breaks the chain, and we're free. And we talk about that a lot. Like, who in here can testify to Jesus breaking a chain in their life, okay? But what happens is we don't break free from this chain and then run after god and say god you freed me you're the only one that actually can give me freedom so i'm going to follow you to keep being free in you we look around at other chains and we're like oh don't want to touch anything and then we're like well after we're looking only down at what the sin is around us we're like well that one actually doesn't seem that bad so we'll just try it on like i'm not going to actually click it you know but i'm trying it on And then it gets clicked on. You're like, ah, God, I need help. Forgive me. And then he breaks it. And then we're like, moving on. But our eyes are directed, downcast at all these sins around us. It's not directed at God. So the first truth I want to say is there's a present truth. We can live before the face of God in Jesus Christ and we will not die. We can live before the face of God and not be shaken because we're in Jesus Christ. We can live before the face of God and be delighted in because of Jesus Christ because God sees Jesus in us so he delights in his son and he delights in us. In Jesus Christ, when God, in the face of God is upon us, it is actually shining upon us. So what's our response? Therefore, My heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My flesh will also rest in hope. Why? Why? Because God's face is shining upon me and you and anyone who places their faith in Jesus. Because Jesus is king and victorious and is on his throne right now, overseeing all the things here on earth. Because because we have been called from death to life. Why? Why? To still act like dead people? No, to act like alive people, to have purpose and to follow God. Because God himself is dwelling in me and making me into the creation he wants me to be. And he's working, no matter matter how hard I fight against it, he's still working in me. So if I can't fail permanently in Christ, and God is working his glory and power through me, no matter what I'm doing, how is all of our hearts not overwhelmed with joy all the time? How is our tongue not shouting his praises constantly from the rooftops, from the mountaintops to everyone we know? Because God is at work and is alive in us. We don't have to be anxious anymore. Because we can fully rest in the hope that Jesus is alive and well, and so am I in him. So our present right now response to the truth is in Jesus, we are actually glad, rejoicing, and hopeful. You know, it's like when you meet people who are a little different, you're like, I don't know, something's off here. But it's not like off, it's off in a good way. It's like, they're too happy. Uh, You know, I don't get what their deal is. Usually, it's hard for people to put a finger on, but for me, I know when I meet someone who is believing the truths of God in Christ because they are glad, rejoicing, and hopeful. And it's such a different, it's just such a different demeanor than most of what the world is. It's not cynical. It's not sarcastic. It's not angry. It's glad, rejoicing, and hopeful. So what would they be so hopeful about? Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead and you will not let your Holy One see decay. Everyone else in human history has died and stayed dead. There is one person in human history that is actually resurrected and stayed alive. His name is Jesus. He has not seen decay and he was resurrected from the dead. And if I am in him and he is in me, and you are in him, and he is in you, you will resurrect too. Jesus makes that promise, and Jesus always keeps his promises. So that, as Christians, is our future hope. I mean, think about it. I mean, just right now, think about it. If you're in Christ, you will resurrect one day. When you close your eyes here on earth, you will open them into a new reality of heaven and earth. Like that will happen. And it's only happening because of Jesus. So, our present hope is that we will actually resurrect with Christ. It is our sole hope that no matter what happens here on earth, no matter how bad it gets, we can rejoice in our sufferings and we can be glad because one day. We will resurrect with Christ. But like I said, the sermon title is called, so now what? Like right now, what do we do? Well, verse 28. You have been made known to me, or you have made known to me the paths of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. God has made known to us the paths of life. So there's only two paths. There's paths that lead to death, and there's paths that lead to life. Um, we actually know which paths to walk down that are good. Because some of us, I, I remember asking some people one time at my house party, I said, hey, if, if God the Father brings us into his house, okay, do you, what do, you, do you think he has any rules? Do you think there's any rules in his house? And the answers we got were like all over the place. It's like, oh, no, absolutely no rules. Once you're in the house, there's no rules. I'm like, show me one house you've been to where you can do anything in that house you want to. It's not, that's not true. And then other people are like, well, it's just whatever the Spirit tells you to do and what you're feeling, that's what what you're gonna do. Well, I actually think that the paths which we walk down, which are good, fulfilling, and holy, um, these are paths laid out by God's commands. God has actually commanded us to do things. That's an interesting phrase for post-millennials like me. Like, it's not uh, choose your own adventure. Like, I don't get to just uh, exist and travel around the world and do whatever I want whenever I want. Like, God's actually commanded us to do something. And not something, a lot of things. Um, He's commanded what a life looks like that's honorable and pleasing to him. And if, if it's true that we are before him only because of his son and we are reconciled to him because he is good and he pursued us, then why would we want anything else? We would know this God is good and loving towards us and he's actually showed us what's good and loving to do. And yet we think that that's like, I don't know. It's probably like legalistic or something. Like we just kind of tiptoe around it. Like, I mean, let's not say exactly. He didn't, he didn't say in absolute, this is what we're supposed to do. But um When you walk down the path of life, no one has ever walked down it and actually made it to the end because we're sinful. But there is one person that's walked down that path and it's Jesus. In Jesus' life, he did everything that was honorable and pleasing to God. So he fulfilled every law and every commandment in his life. He never once tripped up and fell off the path. So how do we walk down the path of life? Well, one, we have a guide and example in Jesus. We see Jesus and we see he's the perfect example and he guides us down the path of life. Um, Jesus in the word of God is the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. So when we trust in Jesus, he actually reveals what it means to walk down this path. Otherwise, we're just in the dark, not knowing what to do. And like I was saying before, like post-millennials, we are in the dark. We don't know what to do. I've never met a post-millennial, basically anyone under 35, who's like, you know, this is what's true, and this is what I'm supposed to do outside of they're a Christian. Because no one knows. We're all like, we'll just figure it out as we go. And there's, there's this emptiness. There's this, there's this struggle, like, well, what, it, what does it mean? Because I thought I found it, but it wasn't what I thought it was. So, again, as we're walking, we will stumble. We will fail. We will go off the path and try other things. But when we repent by turning back to God, we have fresh grace to keep going because God loves us. Because, you know, um, God is not expecting us to walk perfectly. I want you to hear that. Because when we talk about what to do, some of us feel like I'm not doing it good. Well, you're right, and join the club because none of us are doing it well. So God is not expecting us to do it perfectly, which is why he sent his son for us in the first place. But God has actually chosen a path for each one of us to walk. And now all these paths look a little different. If you look around the room, you can see people walking down their path to get in here today is a lot different from the person sitting next to them. So God has chosen all are for all of us, a path to walk down. And while they look a little different, we're all heading to the same place, which is a meeting face-to-face with the king of the universe. And one day we will get to the end of the path. And so the only question that matters when you actually get to the end of the path is, do you know Jesus? Because whether you did the path well, whether you did it terribly, or somewhere in between, the only thing that matters is, do you know Jesus. if you know him, then you will love him. And if you love him, you will obey him. In 1 John, it says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this We may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. So walking down the path with Jesus, you know he's with you, and if Jesus is with you walking, I know you will fill me with joy in your presence. Something I have to ask us as a church. Where is our joy? Where is your joy? I mean, I want you to answer in your head. Think about what you find joy in. Because if it's not in Christ, it's gonna feel half empty. And it's gonna feel like, well, it's, today this is what it is. Because it keeps changing. And <clears throat> once it changes enough, we become depressed. Because we can't find joy. So where is our joy? There's only one way to experience true lasting joy. <clears throat> and like it says, it's it's to be in the presence of the Father. So Jesus has claimed the throne of the universe and stands before us and he stands with us. And if you love Jesus, keep his commandments and you will experience joy. You will rejoice in suffering because it's only a momentary affliction. You will be full, blessed, content, Happy joyful in all circumstances, because God is with you so our present action, what we do now <coughs> is we walk presently with God by obeying His commands and our joy will be complete it's this perfect union of the thing that we want to be to be content, joyful, at peace it's only found when we're actually face to face, before the face of the Father, knowing that we're perfectly loved through his Son and walking in the ways that he's commanded us. That's where we find joy. That's when we find purpose. That's when we find reason for existing. So right now, we're called to walk presently with God by obeying his commands, and our joy will be complete. And if you have that joy, if you you know that joy, What will you do with joy? What will you do with joy? So some of you are asking, Jeremy, I understand. Okay, I'm starting to understand this. I get it. But so now what? Let's answer the original question. Tell me tangibly, what do I do? What does it actually look like walking before the face of God with Jesus as a lamp to guide our feet in the spirit comforting us to keep taking the next step. What does that look like? Well, I'm really glad you asked because um, keeping Jesus' commandments, which he has a lot of them, if you look throughout the New Testament, throughout the Bible, God actually commands a lot of things, but he summarized them with, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But tangibly, those two things summarize what they are. But tangibly, what they could look like could look like a lot of things. So I've been thinking this week what it looks like here at Image with people I see here at Image. So it looks like Ariel, Brittany, and Anne driving all over town to pick up kids so that, that they can come to church on Sundays and hear about Jesus and know his love through the church body. I mean, it looks like all the teachers here at Image stepping into schools week after week to pursue the lost and forgotten. It looks like Tricia, the Harbys, the Andersons being living embodiments of God's promise to not leave his children as orphans and showing that he will come for us. It looks like our kids' unfiltered laughs and smiles, their tears and tantrums, which give us pause by revealing our own sin and also helps us know better the love of our father because we love them so much and it's such a small piece of how much the father loves us. It looks like all the stay-at-home moms who invest their lives into raising godly children. It looks like all the working moms who are working their tails off to ensure their children have an opportunity to succeed. succeed. It looks like all the lawyers, doctors, business suits, and corporate workers who get to reflect Christ in humility, honesty, authenticity, and hard work amongst their co-workers. I mean, it looks like all those who have had disappointments Trauma, suffering, pain, depression, and crisis, yet still cling to Jesus, the rock, as their source of comfort and sustenance in the midst of life's storms and inspiring all of us to do the same. It looks like all minorities, African-Americans, Asians, Hispanics, women, the LBGT and disabled communities who constantly extend grace and forgiveness in the face of discrimination and oppression. It looks like the prayer warriors in our church who are consistently engaging in the spiritual warfare, the the real war going on right now, by coming before the Father, pleading for us in here and lifting us up before him. It looks like Big Phil, Lady Snoop, Lady Ray Ray, Amani, all the singers. It looks like the band, the production team, Danny, all the artists using their gifts to inspire us and reveal God's beauty to us looks like all the house party leaders and all the hosts who sacrifice their time and home week after week so that they can encourage others to get together, eat, actually encourage one another, and pray together. It looks like all the kids volunteers in the back right now watching your kids and my kids letting, serving us by sacrificing their time so you can be here now to actually hear the word of God. It looks like all the people in our church who are never hardly recognized, the Chantiles, the Jennifers, the Aaron's, the Brandy's, for all the things that they do to keep our Sundays afloat and the, the mission of the church moving forward. It actually looks like Matt and Jay having the courage to continue to press forward as the gates of hell hurl every obstacle imaginable at them to sabotage our church's leaders. Jesus actually commanded our church and its leaders to keep two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So today, it actually looks like Rashida, Oscar, and Jose professing their faith in Jesus as their Savior of their soul and the King of their life to us, the church, by being baptized in a few minutes. And it it looks like all of you who profess that Jesus is the center of your being, your mind, and your actions coming up and taking the bread, eating the bread and drinking the wine to re- and the wine to remember. To remember what? To remember how Jesus broke His body for us, and He shed His blood for you. And to remember where Jesus, again is right now that he conquered the grave and he ascended into heaven and he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father on the throne of the universe with everything under his feet and he's called us to be in his kingdom right now as his body, his beloved. So come, eat, drink. All of you who are hungry, all of you who are thirsty, for Christ, and he will forgive your sins, and he will give you a new life in him through the Spirit. Thank you.